Eyes cool. 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 You are listening to the Eyes Cool podcast. It's called that because Eyes Cool sounds like iSchool. The iSchool podcast is a production of students and faculty in the Information School and the Center for the History of Print and Digital Culture at the University of Wisconsin-Madison. The opinions expressed here do not necessarily reflect those of the iSchool or of the UW-Madison. I'm your host, Jonathan Senshin. I'm a professor in the UW-Madison iSchool, and I'm also director of the Center for the History of Print and Digital Culture. You can find this podcast on Apple Podcasts, Stitcher, Spotify, really all the podcast places. Please subscribe, recommend us to your friends, leave a review. This is the beginning of season three of the Eyes Cool podcast. If you've listened to previous episodes of this pod, you know that it grows out of courses in the iSchool's Library and Information Studies program. Groups of students produce segments related to the ideas and topics that they're engaging in class. Season one featured episodes covering each of the books we studied in our intro to the MA LIS seminar. Season two studied genre and the world of book recommendation and marketing. And in season three, we return to being embedded in LIS 601, Information Context and Perspectives, the intro seminar for the Masters in Library and Information Studies program. But instead of going book by book through the semester as we did in season one, this season students have organized around several topics that interest and motivate them from approaches to information in a carceral society to questions of vocational awe and information worker organizing to library materials and services beyond books. So episodes will feature explorations of information, society, and the world of libraries, archives, museums, and information technology from the perspectives of these student groups. To kick off this new season, students sat down over Zoom with a new faculty member in the UW-Madison High School, Jacob Tebalt Speaker. Jacob studies human-computer interaction and social computing and has just joined us in the department by way of the University of Minnesota and Virginia Tech, where he did his PhD and postdoc. So now we'll hear from our students and our new faculty member. Today, we're talking with Jacob Thebald Speaker, Assistant Professor at the University of Wisconsin-Madison's iSchool. Thanks for joining us, Jake. Happy to. So I'm going to start things off by asking if you would introduce yourself and tell us what you're doing in Madison. Uh, well, <laughs> sure. Um, recently in Madison, I've been doing a lot of Zoom calls and things. 
Um, but uh, broadly, I am um, a first year assistant professor in the information school at the University of Wisconsin, Madison. Um, I am a computer scientist by training. So um, I have a PhD in computer science and I did a postdoc in computer science. Um, but the kind of stuff that I do, the kind of research that I focus on is broadly, um, I think about it as like social computing. Um, so kind of at the intersection between people and understanding people and the technology systems that they interact with. Um, so that could be anything from systems like Wikipedia through Uber um, to things like content moderation. Um, broadly, I'm interested in the, the work and effort that people put into um, information systems um, and understanding uh, weaknesses that come about from that work. Um, so weaknesses in the data that's being produced or the content that's being produced, um, including things like biases and, and um, geographic disparities, but also just generally um, content problems or weaknesses that, um, you know, might uh, get built into systems like AI um, or that might matter for readers of Wikipedia, um, that kind of stuff. What drew you to your research in social computing? And what impact do you see that research having? Yeah, um, so my, my backstory here a little bit is, um, you know, I, I went into computer science being excited about computer science and being excited about making computers do different kinds of things and, you know, learning all of that stuff. Um, and about my second or third year in undergrad, I sort of had a crisis of conscience around um, impact essentially, right? Like it, it felt a little bit um, misaligned with who I was to be working on things that might help make Google a little bit faster, right? Um, versus sort of having a, a different kind of impact on the world and people in the world, right? Is sort of the, the fundamental intuition here. So that kind of led me towards human computer interaction, which is sort of the parent field of social computing. And then uh, partly, partially that was, you know, social computing more specifically um, uh, was, was partly a side effect of uh, where I went to grad school and the lab that I was in. Um, the, the people in the computer science department at the University of Minnesota um, who do human computer interaction kinds of work focus on online communities um, and think about the kinds of computational and technological systems that can be built to better support people in whatever they're seeking to do. And so partly, partially, um, you know, I, I wanted to make an impact in the world and for people with technology um, and with, with computation. My lab was focused on studying communities and um, studying behavior in communities online. Um, and then within that, you know, um, I kind of started to focus on what I was seeing as sort of important issues of the day related to disparities um, along race or gender lines in these kinds of communities that come through um, people's behavior, right? And so that's kind of where the, the focus came into. And then uh, the other piece of this is I kind of started by looking at um, some of the, the sharing economy systems like Uber and TaskRabbit. And I think partially that's just a, a sort of side effect of the time. <laughs> I mean, these were new um, increasingly popular systems that the, the field of research had not started to focus on yet. Um, and it was a nice intersection between my interests and um, the interests of my advisors and uh, was a, 
an opportunity to, to make some impact in the, the broader um, social computing field uh, from a you know, novel research perspective. So you just mentioned um, encountering these disparities and we, we know that your work has focused on bias present in crowdsourcing platforms. Could you talk a little bit more about that? Yeah, so I mean, it, it kind of depends on how you want to define crowdsourcing platforms, but um, uh, I'll say this, right? So I am interested in the work that people do in online systems, right? That can be anything from editors on Wikipedia um, producing content and writing articles um, to people on systems like OpenStreetMap, which is kind of like Wikipedia, but it's a map. Um, so they're you know editing the map and you know helping make sure that that the map covers everything well. Um, all the way through to things like Uber, um, where there are people doing the driving, right? Um, and, and people making decisions as Uber drivers about uh, where they're going to go pick someone up or not going to go pick someone up, et cetera. And so I think given that context or given the, the sort of area, the, the high level area that I'm in, I think the biases um, that come about are a systematic problem. I say that to be, be try to be uh, specific about... <laughs> um, there's sort of outcomes that occur in a pattern, uh, sorry, in a, in a general way. Um, you can start to see these patterns within the system overall, um, but might be happening because of individual, somewhat good faith decision-making, right? So an Uber driver, for instance, um, might say, I don't feel safe going to this area of the city. Um, either because I don't know very much about it or because I know that there are some violent crimes that have happened nearby um, or, you know, for whatever reason, right? And, and from, from one level or at one perspective, feelings of individual safety are important for drivers, right? But when that driver makes that decision and, the, and 50 other drivers make that decision or 80% of the drivers make that decision or whatever number you want to pick, right? The outcome of that, those, those sets of decisions that get made individually at the system level mean, at, at least according to the work that I've done, um, mean that people in lower income areas and non-white neighborhoods, for instance, have a harder time accessing the services provided by the app Uber, right? So the drivers are working with for Uber, um, making decisions individually about where they're gonna go pick up and pick up rides, um, or turning off their app to when they're driving through areas where they're unsafe, where they feel unsafe. But that the ways in which Uber interacts with the structures of society <laughs> and the places where people live and the correlations between poverty and crime and race, um, for instance, and, and sort of geography also fundamentally, what that means is while those drivers might be making fair individual decisions for themselves because they feel unsafe, the outcome is such that non-white neighborhoods wait longer for a Uber car to come to their plate, to come pick them up, right? And if you are relying on Uber to get to go pick up a kid at school or hit an appointment before the bank closes or, you know, whatever, those things matter. One of your recent papers made reference to geographic biases that are born, not made. Um, could you explain a little bit more what that phrase means? Yeah, so... Um, that phrase is actually borrowed from a, a piece of research done um, by other people in my uh, grad school lab um, years before I got there. Um, and it comes out of a, a study of Wikipedia um, and editors in Wikipedia um, 
essentially that research, um, which was, you know, done by, by people before my time, um, saw that some people in Wikipedia, something like 20% of Wikipedians, um, produce something like 80% of the content in the site. Um, and that the other 80% of people sort of work around, along the margins and do, you know, kind of the other 20% of the work. Um, and the question became, or the, what they were studying at the time was, do people, do people's trajectories through Wikipedia? Um, so if you join Wikipedia, do you learn how to be one of those people who do uh, 80% of the work? Or do you start from day one being one of those people who does 80% of the work, right? That's the born not made idea, right? When you step into Wikipedia, when you're born into Wikipedia, are you a, a Wikipedian, a power editor in that way, who does 80% of, of the work? Or do you are you made into a power editor over your time in Wikipedia, right? So that was the question they were asking. Um, my research took a similar question, right? Um, thinking in OpenStreetMap, which is a different system, but has a lot of similarities to Wikipedia. Um, and given my focus on, on biases in these systems, um, the question that I was interested in is, when you look at OpenStreetMap broadly, um, you see that there is less and lower quality content in um, rural and poorer areas than urban and, and wealthier areas. Um, and so the question, again, in it, to draw an analogy, right, the question sort of becomes, why does this happen? How does it come about, right? And what we were doing in this work was looking at individual people who come into OpenStreetMap and where do they make contributions? How do they do work there? Um, and how does that change over time, right? And what we saw um, to borrow some of the ideas from this previous study was that these biases kind of are created from day one when people enter the system. So OpenStreetMap uh, contributors tend to focus in their own areas or in cities. Um, or wealthier areas and don't tend to change that pattern over time, right? So people come into the system, they start editing about where they live or whatever. Um, and if they're not editing about where they live, they tend to edit about uh, cities or places that they know, right? So bigger cities, wealthier areas, those sorts of things. Um, and not about, uh, you know, Shawano, Wisconsin, as an example, <laughs> right? Um, but what that means is when people come into OpenStreetMap, they're all many uh, sort of on average tend to um, work in places that they live in or places that they know. And the places that they live in and where, that they know tend to be wealthier and more urban in general. Um, which means that sort of when people come into the system, they're going to be continuing to do this wealthier urban contribution on average. Um, and that that pattern doesn't change as they uh, become more senior in OpenStreetMap, right? So that's the that's the born not made idea, right? These biases that that we see at the system level in OpenStreetMap tend to occur from day one of individual editors, and that is sort of one piece of how these biases get created and sort of um, solidified over time. What can users do to combat crowdsourcing biases on these platforms? I think this is a interesting, 
hard, open question. <laughs> um, I'll say this, in systems like Wikipedia, um, there have been some efforts to um, combat and, and change the effort that's being put in on some kinds of topics, right? So there is a, there's a, a group of people who have come together um, called Wikipedia Women in Red. Um, and it's an effort by a bunch of Wikipedia editors to write articles about prominent women um, because women are, are underrepresented um, uh, in terms of how many articles are written about them on Wikipedia versus the percentage of the population that, that, that they represent, right? Um, and so uh, that effort um, has been an intentional sort of counteracting effort within Wikipedia to um, combat this sort of biased data set, if you want to think about it that way. Um, that said, and, and they have made some, some pretty substantial strides. They have, um, you know, worked really hard. They've put a lot of um, contributions in place. They've created a bunch of new articles and there's a lot of value that's being produced there. Um, but it is not clear that they have achieved parity in that way, right? So even despite this concerted effort to counteract and like explicitly counteract this particular kind of bias, um, it's not clear that they've achieved that goal. Now they may achieve that goal longer term, right? It, it, this is an ongoing project and there's a, there's a bunch of time left <laughs> before Wikipedia ends, right? <laughs> Whatever. Um, but it is, um, it is a hard problem to think about what individuals can do um, within these systems to counteract this problem, right? Um, so you might, for instance, say, uh, what could an Uber driver do to make sure that they are not contributing to the bias problem in Uber. Um, and there's a, a few things they could do, right? You could make sure that you have a good reason to believe that you feel unsafe in a given location. Um, you could be thinking about uh, which places don't you go and which places maybe should you be going. Um, you know, th those kinds of questions are reasonable and are fair. And honestly, Uber could be facilitating Uber drivers starting to ask those questions of themselves through sort of the interface design of the system. But I think that there are also some kinds of problems um, that are not an individual level issue. Um, I think that, so one example here, right? Um, this, is, this is not my research, but it's, it's research done by a friend of mine who looked at um, the ability to use an algorithm to geolocate people on Twitter um, as a way to try to, you know, you can use this for things like um, trying to estimate voting patterns or whatever else based on the content of people's tweets, right? If you, if you look at people's tweets and you know kind of their political orientation, you can kind of estimate where they're from is, is one uh, use of this sort of system. Um, but what they did is they also have ground truth. They, they, they also had where people were actually from, right? And so they could look at where does the algorithm put where these people are from versus where are these people actually from? Um, and what they showed is that that algorithm was unable to um, accurately identify where rural people are from, even when entirely trained on content from rural people. Um, 
So that's not an individual problem, right? That is, that is an algorithmic problem that is um, independent of a decision that an individual makes or independent of, a, of what an individual might tweet about on, on Twitter, right? Um, and I think that there's a question related to um, the s almost societal structures around what we consider important um, in systems like Wikipedia, right? Wikipedia has a, has a standard of notability for what gets allowed or disallowed to be represented in Wikipedia. In OpenStreetMap, um, in, in the neighborhood where I used to live um, in grad school in St. Paul, um, there were a bunch of things that were mapped. You know, it's relatively common. Um, it's, you know, it's a big city, whatever. But there was, a, there was an, uh, an apartment building that was a couple blocks away um, that had like a nice, um, you know, lawn area, fenced in, like courtyard kind of place, right? And that apartment building was mapped, the, the courtyard was mapped, and the trees, the individual trees in that courtyard were represented on the map in OpenStreetMap. But if you think about um, sort of a different place that I've lived in my life in, in Sebec, Maine, which is a small town of 600 people <laughs> um, in the middle of nowhere, uh, and it's in northern, you know, central northern Maine, so there's a lot of trees, um, it would be insane in some ways, it would be bizarre in some ways to map every individual tree in rural Maine. Um, that's not to say you can't do it. The Forest Service cares about those things and the Forest Service pays people to go do tree surveys and like figure out the GPS locations of trees. Um, so it's important information in one way, but OpenStreetMap has decided that that's not the way that's going to be represented, right? You can map individual trees in cities you can, you should not, according to the, the community guidelines in OpenStreetMap. That's just an example. It's kind of a silly example in one way, but OpenStreetMap as a community has decided that individual trees are important in cities and has decided that individual trees are not important in forests. So those norms and those kinds of decisions that occurred at some point in time in the past um, continue to interact with um, how these biases get created, right? If you mapped every individual tree in rural places, probably we would start to see degrees of content disparity. You know, the, the numbers of the amount of content in urban versus rural places, those would probably change pretty substantially because there would be a lot more things being mapped in rural places, as an example. So, you know, there are certainly individual decisions that, that individual contributors can make and, and perhaps should make and perhaps technology should be built to think about supporting people making those kinds of decisions. Um, but I'm not sure it's entirely an individual problem. So for our last question here, um, the, the context for this question was in, in our class discussion on um, this topic, we were very pessimistic overall about the outlook for the future um, and trying to remove so much bias from search engines and algorithms. So for the technology that you've studied, what, if any, optimism do you see for the future? I'll say this. As a, as a computer scientist or by training and um, someone who really is pretty motivated behind understanding these biases, the optimism for me is is sort of fundamental, right? It's sort of why I do the work that I do <laughs> because 
the outcome or the, the next steps beyond understanding these is I think thinking about solutions and trying to build systems to, to address them. In the geography case, I think that there are some potentially, uh, there, there's potentially some good news here because potentially this is partially about design decisions that get made um, by sharing economy systems. Um, that's part of why we had pursued the, the rating system study initially, right? But for instance, Uber requires that people who drive for Uber have cars and have banks um, and have access to resources in order to be able to be Uber drivers. Um, but in, in one of the, the sort of in, the, in this work that we've been doing, um, we kind of came across this study from like the 80s by people, there's a guy in um, Nebraska actually, who studied um, what he called vernacular cabs, um, essentially groups of people in areas of cities that were being underserved or not served by cab companies, figuring out sort of grassroots within community approaches to uh, transportation. Right. And the way that this um, researcher described this is that essentially these were cab services that are run on the phrase he used was gentlemen's agreements. Right. But essentially you call a number, you say, I need a ride. You say they say, OK, I'm going to pay, you know, it, it costs you this much. And you can say, well, I don't have that much. Can I give you X? Right. And then you come to an agreement and you sort of, quote, shake on it. Right. And then you get a ride from point A to point B. Um, and those were within community, sort of by the community for the community, right, is, is the way I would think about it. Um, and that is, I think, the other piece here that um, is not obviously um, set in stone, right? Uber exists as a system that is run by the company, right? But the ideas behind cooperatives and the ideas behind um, by the community, for the community, uh, are not impossible to think about building technology for. Um, they're not impossible to think about supporting in rural places. I mean, one of, one of the major problems in rural places is um, healthcare, but a big portion of that is lack of transportation. If you live in a rural place, you can't easily get to an appointment an hour away. Um, some hospitals in rural places have started basically running bus lines to people's houses um, to make sure that people can get access to healthcare. What might it look like for one town or five surrounding towns in rural Wisconsin to band together and build a cooperative to help people get to the hospital? For instance, right? Using systems like Uber, right? To say, I have an appointment tomorrow, I need to call a cab. How do I get there? And what does it mean to sort of incentivize people within the community to support that kind of effort? Uh, what, what are the economics around making it fair, right? All those questions I think are, are interesting and, and are open. Um, the other thing I wanted to point out here is there is some ongoing research by people, um, former uh, colleagues of mine, not former colleagues of mine, colleagues of mine, uh, my, my former PhD advisor, <laughs> um, they, him, him, he and his students are looking at, can we think about the monetary value of something like Wikipedia, right? So if you think about um, 
doing a Google search and you uh, search for, you know, let's say um, Richard Nixon, right? Um, you're going to search for Richard Nixon. You're going to get a sidebar that comes up that it gives you a little blurb about Richard Nixon and has a picture. And most of that content is pulled from Wikipedia. Um, you'll, you'll see at least one entry of Wikipedia of Richard Nixon, right? You might see other websites that are building on Wikipedia's information about Richard Nixon. And what their study did, or, you know, one of their studies that they're, that they're pursuing, they essentially were recording how people interact with Google. Um, when you leave Google the way it is, and when you remove that user generated content, that Wikipedia content. Um, and what they saw was that something like, in some cases, 80% of uh, click-throughs from Google, so clicking into something else, uh, dropped off by like 80% when you get rid of the Wikipedia content that's shown there, right? So what they're getting at is Wikipedia provides a lot of value online. It is an important system. Um, and it is a monetarily valuable system because when you put Wikipedia content in a Google search, you can then also put ads next to it. Um, and you can then also, you know, it's a, it's, a, it's a fundamental monetary value to Google in that way, right? So tying those economic indicators back to the value of individual contributors um, is another piece that I think is somewhat promising here, right? Because what it means that there is economic cost essentially to uh, the limitations that Wikipedia has. Um, that's true for probably, it's probably true for OpenStreetMap as well, right? These are big data sets and are, are you know, uh, pieces of information, pools of information. And they get used in very important ways. Um, and they get used in ways that make other companies a lot of money. And so I think that that is the other piece that is an open question. Um, but putting a number on and thinking about the value of uh, the work that these individual people are doing in systems like Wikipedia and tying those um, relationships back to something like Google's bottom line um, is I think an al also a very interesting direction of, of research and um, sort of uh, a, a possible path to a different future, right? All right. Thank you so much for sharing your time and your expertise with us, Jake. We really appreciate having the opportunity to talk with you. Thank you. Yeah, happy to. Thank you all. Thank you for listening. That's the end of our first episode of season three of the Eyes Cool podcast. We'll be back very soon with a new episode full of shorter segments on a range of topics related to information, society, libraries, archives, museums, and information technology. Thanks for listening.